In your worship folder, you will find a helpful sermon outline, and also on the back of that is the sermon passage for today, and I also believe it's going to be on the screen behind us from Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Ivan. Those are powerful words, huh? We are continuing a series this morning in the book of Acts. Uh, This is Luke's second volume to his two-volume work in the New Testament. Of course, he wrote the Gospel of Luke, and then he is writing to Theophilus again here, telling about the early church. And you know, if you're here, a lot of this stuff has to do with us talking together as a church about who we are and and, uh, what we desire to see God do among us and through us uh, in our city. But you know, there are a lot of people who are new to the church. There are a lot of people who are new to our church. There are a lot of people, there are people here who, who don't know what they believe or they've not really committed to Christ and I just want to say, even though this is, you're, you're kind of witnessing a, a, um, a family meeting here as we go throughout this book, you know, for the next few months or so, uh, but don't discount what a great opportunity that is for you. If you're here and, and you're not sure what you believe, you're here, you're new to the church, you're new to our church, this is a great opportunity for you to see uh, what the church is supposed to be, what Christianity really at its heart is supposed to look like, because that's what this book of Acts is doing for us. And that's really this picture here in Acts 2 and Acts 4 of this early first-generation Christian church right after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, we have to refuse a temptation as we go through this book, and it's the temptation to moralize these stories. It's what we'd like to do. So you see something here, and you think, well, I just need to follow the example of that here, and that's what the story is about. And I want to submit to you that I think this, this book of Acts really serves a different purpose than that. We have to refuse the temptation to moralize these stories and instead see that what these stories have been given us to do is to help conceptualize the church. Acts is a a vision document. It's a mission document for the church. It's to help us see in reality what God desires for us to be and what is possible through the work of his spirit. I must put it this way to you. Acts is the church in revival. Acts 2 and Acts 4 particularly are revival in archetypal form. Acts 2 is the church as it's experiencing revival. It's what the church looks like in periods of revival, but of course revival is just that. It is periodic, not constant. Both the scripture and church history teach us this. 
So perhaps this is the explanation, as we talked about last week, of why there seems to be such a difference between what we read, those words that Ivan just read to us, and how powerful they are, and what we experience most times in modern-day Christianity. The church in Acts, at least for the first 25 years or so, was in an extended but sadly unsustainable period of revival. Now, we have to really do some work on that word because we need to understand what I mean by that. But here's what I want you to see. If that's true, we don't read Acts merely to learn what's wrong with our Christianity. It's a temptation to do that. But instead, we should read Acts to learn what's possible. What's possible for the church if we walk in the power of the Spirit that's been given to us by the resurrected Lord Jesus. If the Holy Spirit were to come and blow upon the embers of our faith and fan them into flame, and were to read so that we begin to pray for God, we read those words and we say, oh God, do that among us. Do that here among us. Do what you did in that day with those people among us too. That's what I think we're supposed to feel and what we're supposed to do as we, as we read these stories. Now, I would tell you this. Our Redeemer We're now pushing up to about seven and a half years old, something like that as a church. And we, I don't think I'm overstating if I say that I really think, as I thought back this week on this, that this church, this church was birthed out of of an experience of revival. Uh, the, The 15 families or so who started this church in 2008, really the church, the move to really plant a church itself I think all of those people, uh, if they could be in one place at one time, would say that it really was out of an experience, a corporate experience among us of of just a renewing in the gospel, a a sense of revival that spilled out into this new church uh, in the city. And so I think this church was birthed birthed out of revival. Uh, What's interesting is here of late, I've actually begun, because of what we're doing here in Acts and some other things, I've begun to pray that we would experience the same sort of thing again. I've even used the words with our staff and elders because I think, and again, I'm very careful here because pastors are are notorious for inflating language and saying things that, you know, in in an exaggerated way, and I'm trying not to do that this morning. I get in trouble with that sometimes. But I really think, I, I would like to say it this way, I really think that we're on the verge of revival again. If, if, if in some sense we're not already experiencing, here's what I mean, we've, We've seen a large influx of new people to the church, not 3,000 in one day as they did here in Acts, but maybe 50 or 100 new people in the last six to nine months, not counting the Southwest Church that we, we launched here just recently, which for church our size is pretty significant, something like a 30% increase in just over six months. We're seeing people converted. You don't know this, but listen, there are people listening to the sermons that are preached to this church on our app that live all over the country. I've heard more than one, more than one story. There are people listening to sermons on the app that have never stepped foot into the, in this church that are being radically converted. Right? And, and, and I, don't, I don't really have an explanation for that, uh, except that God is using, you know, using his word and using his people. We're seeing people converted here. Sometimes towards the end of, of last year, I, I experienced uh, something like what I would call personal revival. Last fall, I've not really said this publicly, uh, but last fall, uh, towards October and beyond, I, I really got to a place where I was really close to burnout. I actually, uh, I was barely hanging on by a thread, and I, I actually went to our elders, and I, I asked if I could take a sabbatical this summer uh, just because I needed to rest and recover. And what we had been told is that most, most guys who planted churches sometime around year six, seven, or eight 
that you get to that place to where you, they, they, they walk away, actually, because they think they're being called to something else. It's just they're tired. And so I went to our elders, and I said, can I have some time off? And, of course, they agreed. And then uh, something happened, uh, some, some, you know, personal revival of sorts, and there was new energy and new freedom and new joy in my life, and it carried over into the new year, and we launched Redeemer Southwest, and um, even, even giving those 50 people or, or, or so away, we're still up about 100 people in attendance here, and there seems to be a new energy for ministry. We have people suffering um, horribly, you know, with, we have a number of people with cancer and battling that in this church, but they're doing it with such joy and such, and such holy, um, I don't even know how to characterize that, that, you know, I, I've, just, I've just started to wonder, what is God doing? And I've started to pray, would you, would you renew your church? And I, and, you know, and I just stand before you to say, I wonder if that's not part of what God desires to do with us. So at the end of my sermon last week, I defined a revival, praying, you know, as, so I'm saying let's pray and let's, let's see that this is what we're being shown here is what it might look like for God to come in that way among us. Last week I defined at the end of the sermon revival or what it would be to be filled with the Spirit as the church is here in Acts chapter 2, this Pentecost experience they have. And I said it would be new power for mission that brings the church together rejoicing in the gospel. New power for mission that brings the church together Rejoicing in the gospel, so there would be radical personal transformation and conversions, bold and sacrificial mission, committed and energetic togetherness, and passionate and joyful worship all at the same time. That's Holy Spirit fullness according to Acts 2. And it's what we see here in these verses, isn't it? And it's what it would look like for God to begin, again, to blow on the embers of our, of our faith and fan them into flame among us as well. But as we talk about these things and as we define... We've got, we've got some work to do here because there's two barriers we come up against and, and even beginning to walk towards, you know, the idea of this, of revival. And the first problem is definition. Uh, we, we have to really be careful with our definitions here. And here's the way. This is just all introduction this morning, but I, I feel like it's good work for us to do. And here's what I want to say to you is, is that what you see here in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit coming down upon his church, the third person of the Trinity being poured out upon God's people. Holy Spirit power which is the promise of Pentecost, is supernatural. However, that supernatural power works in both ordinary and extraordinary ways, and we have to remember that. You have to remember that. You've got to have that category there. What I mean is this, that Holy Spirit works in the church in small, everyday, ordinary things and also in big, extraordinary things. And so the normal experience of the church is the supernatural work of the Spirit in ordinary ways. But hear me, just because they're ordinary doesn't mean they're not supernatural. You see what I'm saying? So for example, kindness towards one another, forgiveness when we sin against one another, these are ordinary, everyday things in church, at least they should be. They happen all the time. I mean, all the time. But, but just because they happen all the time, and just because they're ordinary, every time it happens, it's a miracle. Every time somebody reaches out to somebody else with forgiveness or with kindness, that's a supernatural work of God. Do you see that? Anytime you hurt someone and they forgive you, that's supernatural. Every time, and it seems like every time it happens, I'm reduced to just a puddle of tears up here for some reason, but, but every time one of our kids stands up on stage to make a public profession of faith, that's a miracle. It should happen all the time. There are a lot of them running around here, and it does happen often, but every time it happens, it's a miracle. Acts 2... See, Acts 2 is something different. Acts 2 is extraordinary. 
For us, often, our experience of the Spirit in church is, is in the ordinary, but both are supernatural. Both are Spirit-filled. Revival, though, revival is the times when the Spirit's ordinary and yet supernatural work gives way to His extraordinary and supernatural work. And that's what we, ha- we see happening here in Acts 2 at Pentecost. Let me put it another way. Let me put it another way. Revival is the intensification of the ordinary operations of the Spirit. That's what revival is. Revival is the intensification of what is ordinary about how the Spirit works. So when the ordinary happens, but with greater frequency or intensity or with extraordinary power, that's, that's what we mean by that word. Another example, it should be an ordinary experience for people to be coming to faith because of this church's ministry. If it's not an ordinary experience of people being converted in a church's ministry, something's wrong. Something's wrong. But even though, you know, so it's an ordinary everyday thing for people to be coming to faith, but a period of of revival is when it begins to happen in bunches. When it begins to happen to people who are fringe in relationship to the church, who've never stepped in foot in the church in this sort of thing. When, When good sermons go beyond just being good sermons to cutting people to the heart, when community groups are so life-giving that people linger and don't want to go home, and if you're a host, you know, you have to start to do the, oh, I'm tired kind of thing to get people to leave your house because they don't want to. Or there's a difference between knowing God's love and having it shed abroad on your heart. So the first, the first barrier is definitions. We've got to be careful with our definitions, but then the second barrier and then we're going to come to the text. The second barrier is our individualism. We have to be really careful, and we have to understand how, how our individualistic approach to Christianity and all things in our life really does mess us up in the way we understand and have expectations of how God's Spirit would work, because Holy Spirit here indwells the church, not just individuals. And therefore, you experience the fullness of the Spirit only in community. So both Acts 2 and Acts 4, Luke reports a powerful coming of the Spirit upon God's people, the shaking of the place where the church was. And the very next thing in both Acts 2 and Acts 4 is these descriptions of the church. And so we're going to talk about the church of the Spirit. The Spirit creates a church of people full of the Spirit as they live and minister and work together in the place that God's called them. Now, this is the first time this has ever happened in this church. I just have one point in the sermon this morning. Can you believe that? One point. Doesn't mean it's going to be any shorter. So I'm sorry to break it to you. But just one thing to say this morning. And here's what I want to do as we approach this text. I just want to walk through and show you how what you see here is a, is a church experiencing revival. And the, the evidence of this church experiencing revival here is that it, it, the, the, ordinary, the ordinary ways and operations of God's spirit are giving way to his extraordinary and supernatural ways of working among a people. And you see, you see another, a, a number of reasons. I have three, actually, so I guess you could say there are three points, but we're going to go with the one. And here's what I mean. Look, first, look at their energy. I want you to see their energy, okay? There's such energy and potency in what they're, in what they're doing. So we see verse 33, the apostles ministered in great power, and then great grace is upon them all. So you have great power, and you have great grace. Power is dunamis there. It means dynamite. So there's just, ex- there's spiritual atomic bombs going off everywhere as these people gather together and as they go and live in their community. God's power is coming and working powerfully in people's lives. Grace means favor. It means that, that as they did their work, they were effective. They were, they, they, they made changes. Things happened because of the things that they were doing, right? 
4.43 says there were wonders and signs happening among them. 3,000 people converted in one day. I mean, lives were being changed. There was power. I mean, this is not a picture of a church barely hanging on. There's vitality and energy. And it's not just what the apostles are doing. Great grace was upon them all, we read. In other words, the whole church was doing ministry together to great affect day after day. 246, day after day, they met together. Not once in a while, not three out of four Sundays. I mean, they could barely stand to miss a meeting. They were in and out of one another's lives constantly. And, and you just see, you read this and you think, wow, what, what energy and vitality these people had. And really, it highlights the way that we can be gripped by spiritual apathy and hard-heartedness, doesn't it? I mean, in every, every people in every area has reasons for that. I don't know, part of the reason for that in our area is this is just such a great place to live, isn't it? I mean, the rest, it's snowing in other parts of the country right now. Do you know that? Now it's 90 degrees here, and that kind of stinks, but at least it's not snowing. We had a golf tournament, and one of the guys was saying, we can't even play, it's, the ground's still frozen where I live. That's terrible. I mean, it's a great place to live. People, people live here because of how fun it is to live here. People live in our, in our county and in our city, and they'll live in much smaller houses that they can afford. Because, then they, you know, they could afford much bigger houses, but they don't care about the big houses. They want a smaller house so they can have the hunting lease, and they can have the boat, and they can have the ATV, and they can have all the toys. Because that's what, that's what people around here live for. There's, there's, there's busyness with kids' activities and sports and recreational opportunities and all of these kinds of things. And what happens is it's easy to allow all of that to come into your life and create spiritual apathy and unconcern. But in periods of revival, the church is full. You've got to come early to get a seat. The sermons cut people to the heart. There's supernatural energy and vitality. But second, not only their energy, look also at their activity. Look at what they did. Because what they did is supernatural as well. They devoted themselves, we're told. And that word means to give something away. And so they were radically unselfish. They devoted themselves to God and they devoted themselves to each other. They generously and sacrificially gave themselves away to God and generously and sacrificially gave themselves away to each other. So let's take a look at each of those for just a minute. So you see here in these verses, supernatural worship and devotion to God, them giving themselves away to God in worship and in learning, in worship and in learning. So verse 42 of chapter 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And then moving on down to verse 46, and day after day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. And so you see the, the large group, the Sunday morning worship service, and then the community groups. And I mean, there's a reason why we structured ourselves the way we did. It's because of what we see here. And so you see, you see their devotion in worship. They went to the temple together, and that refers to the daily worship services and sacrifices, both morning and evening, where the priests would offer a sacrifice, and a congregation would gather to watch and then join in the prayers and receive the blessing of the priests. We're told here about the breaking of bread. That, that definite article there is really important. And the prayers also indicating a certain rhythm or liturgy to their way of life, a pattern of worship and discipleship. But of course, it went beyond that for them and should for us. All of life is meant to be worship. My life is not my own. I am no longer, I am no longer to live for myself, but for the one who loved me and died for me, Second Corinthians 5 says. 
And that's what it means to offer yourself up to God as a living sacrifice, Romans 12. You give up your life and you give it to him. You say, here I am. I'm yours. You know, do whatever you wish with me. And this is the way they were giving themselves. They were giving themselves to God in worship, both in a pattern of worship and discipleship, but in all of life, but also in learning. Verse 42 of chapter 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, this is, this is amazing. It's supernatural what happens here. I mean, they, they, they realize they have much to learn. And they, and they know it. I mean, they're aware of this. And that's, that's, that's the part that's really astounding. They give themselves to learning from the apostles. They come day after day and they hang on every word because they're hungry for gospel truth. I mean, that's, that's supernatural. Because the human heart is by nature proud and self-assured. Sin makes us know-it-alls. The fool in the Bible is the know-it-all. And his refusal to receive instruction is ultimately what gets him in trouble. But these early Christians, they were humble, they were teachable, they vulnerably submitted their lives to God's word. I mean, the book of Proverbs says that there's a way that seems right to man, but it leads to death. And so when the Spirit comes, they begin to realize we've got to relearn everything. I mean, the way we've always done things, the way we've always thought about things, it isn't the way. Jesus is the way. Our ways lead to death. Well, we've, got to, we've got to relearn how to relate to one another. We've got to relearn how to relate to the things that God has given to us and use them in a way that honors him. And if you want a picture, I mean, I'd say this is supernatural. If you want a picture, just think about this. Moms and dads, can you, can you imagine your 15-year-old sauntering into your bedroom late at night, walking over and saying, Mom, Dad, you know I realize that I'm not old enough or wise enough to make good decisions on my own. And I really need your help. Would you please spend time with me every day and teach me, and I promise I'll listen and do everything you tell me to do. <laughs> Parents, can I get an amen? I mean, can you, like, what would you do? First, I'd say, I'm going to need your fingerprint analysis and DNA sample to make sure that you are my child. Do you see how miraculous that would be? 15-year-olds don't do that, do they? Let's don't be too hard on them. Neither do 35-year-olds or 45-year-olds. It's supernatural. It's miraculous. So there's supernatural worship and devotion to God. They give themselves away to God in learning, in worship and in learning. But then we also see the supernatural togetherness, don't they? They give themselves away to each other. So this word together keeps coming up. Verse 44 of chapter 2, they believed, all who believed were together Verse 46, day by day attending the temple together. Now, it's not an issue of time here necessarily, but of unity of purpose and mission. Ashley and I have less time together. I mean, we have four children, okay? That's all you need to know. And so one-on-one -on -one time without interruptions, I think that the last time that happened was 2007. But, but we have less time with one another because of just the busyness and the crowd and all of that kind of stuff. But, you know, we talk about all the time we feel more togetherness with one another than we ever have before. Because, because we're united in a mission. And so togetherness might actually mean less time together because of mission. But they were of one heart and soul, 432 says. They, there were no competing agendas or loyalties. There were no special interest groups. There were, there were no parties and, and divisions. They were united around mission. Of course, I'm sure, petty differences, yes, but, but what, what happens is, is over all the things, all the ways they may become aggravated with one another or the little petty differences they may have, 
overshadowed all, mission overshadowed all of that so that everybody was of one heart and soul. Everybody wanted the same thing. Everybody was rowing in the same direction. Everybody had the same goal. Can you imagine that? Twice, Luke says, they had all things in common. In other words, they believed that their stuff didn't just belong to them, that they had claim on one another's gifts and one another's goods. Do you believe that? These people live as if the, the things that God had given to them, their gifts, their talents, their, 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 you know, their inclinations, and their goods, their material goods and resources, that they didn't just belong to them, but that they actually were given to them because they belonged to the community at large. My, I have a gift of teaching. That's why I stand up here and do this most Sundays. My gift of teaching doesn't belong to me. It belongs to you. It's been given to me, but for you. For your, it's a gift of God to you, the church. And you have gifts that have been given, and they don't belong to you. And so I'm not allowed to use my gifts or my goods for selfish gain. So as a result, they exhibited an otherworldly care for one another, a willingness to, to sacrifice, to care for one another's needs, to love one another to their own hurt. Those who had property, were told. Did you read that part? Those who had property and worldly goods, they sold their stuff and brought it to the apostles to be given to those in the church in need so that, verse 33 of chapter 4, there was not a needy person among them. Can you imagine that? And I challenge the first church. I know we have the resources financially and otherwise in this church. There, there, there should never be a reason for anybody connected to this church to ever be in legitimate need. There's no reason. There's no reason for no child in this church. I mean, a couple years ago, we had kids that started coming here, and, and it took us about three months to realize they were sleeping on the floor because they did not have beds. There should be no child that comes here that does not have a bed to sleep on, that does not have food to eat, that, that does not have the things that they need. We have all the resources that we need, and we should expect to be seen. I, mean, I know, I know this is the part where every, every, every sermon I, I listen to or heard or have ever heard, you know, this is the part where I'm supposed to make all of us feel better and say, well, now be careful, let's don't go too far. This isn't socialism. Right? I'm supposed to do that, but I'm not going to. I want to say, don't make political policies, public policies out of the, this, this was never intended to become political policy or public, public policy, but it should be church policy. We should be seeing this happen. We should have an expectation that we share our goods and our gifts with one another to our own hurt. And of course, this highlights our selfishness, doesn't it? Where the, the ways that I can live as if my gifts, my goods belong to me, and I get to decide who, what, when, where, how much, how long, and all of these things. But periods of revival are marked by people unselfishly giving themselves away to God in worship and learning. Here I am, Lord, I'm yours. And unselfishly giving themselves away to one another in radical, sacrificial ways to meet practical needs. That is the vision of what the church, the possibility of what the church can be. In the power of the Spirit. And it's supernatural. There's a third reason I would say that this is a supernatural community. It's, you see their unique identity. Look here. Now, let me, let, me, let me digress for just a minute. Have you ever, have you ever thought about the idea of personality? These things uh, captivate me, so forgive me if I... This, it really isn't a tangent. It may feel like it for just a minute. But take whatever category you want, whether it's extroversion versus introversion. I like that uh, because I like, people are still surprised that I tell them I'm an introvert. But if you're extroverted, uh, then it's easy for you to make friends, and, and we introverts uh, envy that in you. But let's be honest, sometimes you leap before you look, Right? Extroverts can, be tend, can, be, can tend to do that. Introverts, like me, if you're introverted, you're thoughtful. You, uh, you probably make 
you might be slower to make decisions, but there's research that it sounds like I'm tooting my own horn, but uh, it's, there's research that suggests that introverts make better decisions because they take longer to make those decisions sometimes. But but you can become you can become trapped in the paralysis of analysis, or you might be too reserved. You might live too much in your head. You might be too shut off from the people in your life, whatever the case might be. Myers Briggs, you can take that, or the sanguine, choleric, melancholy, and phlegmatic, whatever it might, might be. Here's my contention. Personality, as it's measured in all of these tests that we do, is really a, a function of brokenness. What personality is doing is showing how there's some things that we're good at. There's some strengths that we have, but they're only in certain areas. And the problem is, in every single one of those things, when you identify your strength, immediately there's a corresponding weakness. So personality is a function of our fallenness and frailty. We're good at some things. And even those strengths come with corresponding weaknesses. So, you, you know, you begin to ask, I've asked this question, did Jesus have a personality? And I don't make this the, the big takeaway from the sermon because it's not meant to be. But my point is, if personality, if an accentuation of certain characteristics of who I am that come with corresponding weaknesses, if that's a function of my fallenness, if Jesus was redeemed and perfect in his humanity, then he wasn't just one of those. Jesus wasn't introverted, all the, you know, and, and not extroverted, so all the introverts can feel better about themselves in the room. Or the opposite. Jesus wasn't sanguine. He was all of those things all at once because there was a wholeness, there was a roundness to who he was uh, in, his, in his perfection. I mean, talk, speaking the truth in love, are you a truth person or are you a love person? Every single person in the room really lends towards one, tends, you know, to kind of move towards one or the other, right? Was Jesus a truth person? Of course, all the truth people say, yeah, he was. Look what he did, right? He spoke the truth all the time to people. All the love people say, yeah, but he's compassionate. You see, where we, where we tend to be, if you're a really good truth person, the love part's hard for you. If you're a really good love person, the truth part's hard for you. You read about Jesus in the Bible, it seems, it seems that he has proficiencies equally in both. Because there's something what rounded about him. There's something supernatural. Well, same thing. Churches have personalities too. Different churches are good at some things, but always with corresponding weaknesses. And this is because of sin, but not, not this church we read about here next to not this church. Look. Look here with me. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's theology and Bible study, so they're good Presbyterians. They had dynamic worship services every day, and that make, that, they sound like Pentecostals. They had intimate fellowship with one another, breaking bread with one another in their homes. Well, that sounds like the anti-institutional home church model. They were doing radical personal evangelism. Every day, people were being converted, and now they sound like Baptists. And then look what they're doing. They're giving away their money to the poor and the needy and doing mercy and justice, and that makes them sound like mainline churches. You see, each different denomination of churches has a personality. They're good at some things, always with a corresponding weakness. But the Spirit-filled church is supernatural. It does all of these things. It's transdenominational. Think about it this way. Were these early Christians liberal or conservative? Well, you know, they believed in wealth redistribution. The wealthy sold property and gave it to the poor. Well, that makes conservatives quiver. Oh, but they had a deep orientation towards truth. They believe in conversion, and that makes liberals nervous. There's, this is a transpolitical community. So a church in revival will have conservative and liberal ideologies tugging and pulling against one another because it's not a conservative or a liberal movement. It's a heavenly movement. The kingdom of God transcends political ideologies, transcends denominational identities. 
This was a supernatural community. There's no other explanation for what we see here than that God was at work among them in a very special way. And it's what's possible for us too, were God to come on us the way he did upon them. Now look, it happens over and over again here. This kind of thing, this pouring out of the Spirit, it happens in Acts 2, and then again in Acts 4, Acts 8, Acts 10, and Acts 19. It's a repetition of Pentecost throughout the book of Acts. We'll see this as we go along. And throughout the history of the church, you have the Protestant Reformation, and then the First Great Awakening under the preaching of Jonathan Edwards in, in, uh, in New England in, in the 18th century, and then in Wales with Daniel Rollins, and in the mid-19th century, beginning with a little prayer group of men in New York City. You see this happening over and over again. Martin, Luke, Martin, Martin, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, uh, you know, the conclusion is what happened at Pentecost can happen again. So what would it take? What would it take then for us to experience and see something like this? And that's where I want to end. So let's come, let's come to the end here this morning. What would it take? And I want to say two things. And these are just by way of application. And the first thing is it would take us waking up to our weakness. We have to wake up to weakness. Martin Lloyd-Jones, great preacher in London in the mid-20th century, has written quite a bit about this. And he says that it all begins when we realize our weakness, our impotence, that the power is always from God and not from man. You know, Zechariah 4, 6, not by might nor by power. Can you finish that? But by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So what's he talking about? It doesn't matter. Apply it to anything you want to. The problem, he says, is the reason there's so little power among Christians is our theology, whether intentionally or inadvertently, our theology in, in evangelicalism has begun, begun to cause us to rely upon our own abilities. I mean, if you believe that your good works are what save you, or if you believe that it's faith that saves you, but that faith comes from you, it's what you do, it's something that you must do, you turn it into a work, then in either case, what matters is what you do. It's your smarts, it's your strength. And this is what's killing us, because the minute you start thinking that way, the minute you start thinking that the solution to whatever problem you find yourself in the middle of comes from you, you've unplugged yourself from the power source. So Lloyd-Jones says this great quote, listen to this, he says, the first step then is to realize that man, having done everything, has in a sense done nothing. Man, having done everything, has in a sense done nothing. Isn't that exactly what the Bible teaches? That at the end of all of our doing... At the end of all of our striving, all of our trying to do the right thing, the Bible says, there is no one righteous, no, not one. There is no one who seeks God. No one does good, no, not one. Having done everything, we have still done nothing. And here's the thing, that can be the place of despair or the place of hope. It depends on what you're trusting in. So what are you trusting in? Are you trusting in your ability to organize and manage your life? Are you trusting in your money to allow you to arrange things exactly how you want them? Are you trusting in your good works or your faith? Or are you trusting in the power and the grace of God? I mean, what is your hope for getting through today? Is it your strength your smarts, your calendar, your organization, your plan? If so, you're unplugged from the power source. When, when you wake up to your weakness, that's when the power switch gets flipped on. And that's what Acts 2 and Acts 4 are meant to do. We're, we're meant to read this and say, oh, oh, that it could be like that. Oh, that I could experience something like that. And w- see, and when you, when, you, when you read it and you know that you have no strength to accomplish that on your own, that's the moment it becomes a possibility.
because the weight of power is weakness. I mean, this is the gospel, isn't it? That the person who lives with spiritual power is the one who knows that having done everything, they've still done nothing. And I want to say to you, it's actually the place of hope, not despair. Because watch, look at how Luke characterizes these people in Acts 2. He says, Acts 2, 46, that they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. And that's the second thing. We have to wake up to weakness, but secondly, we have to be glad in God. That's the secret to their supernaturalness, joy, gladness in God, overflowing in generosity to other people. That's a spiritual principle. These early Christians were unselfishly giving themselves away to God and to one another. Why? Because they had come to see how God had unselfishly given himself away in Christ to them. That's the reason for their gladness. They're putting the needs of others ahead of their own and loving other people to their own hurt. Why? Why would they do that? Because they'd come to see how in Jesus, God had loved them by putting their needs ahead of his own comfort and loved them to his own hurt. I mean, think about the gospel. What does the gospel tell us? On the cross, we learn, I am guilty of crimes against my king, and yet, instead of punishing me as he should have, he has shown me mercy. I have a need to be forgiven, to be reconciled to to my God in heaven. And to meet that need, Jesus had to let go of comfort. Because he, and because he loved me, he loved me to his own hurt. But not only the cross, the resurrection. The resurrection teaches, teaches me that Jesus has given me a hope beyond anything in this world. That there's a hope and a treasure that nothing in this world and not even death can take away from me. And not only the cross and the resurrection, but the Spirit. In the Spirit, Jesus has provided for me all the power and the wisdom I will need in the person of the Spirit to live in obedience to his commands. Now, revival is the word we use to describe when these truths move beyond just notions to being a fiery reality in your soul. Revival is not moving beyond truth to experience. It's moving to a deeper experience of the truth. It's not spiritual experience at the expense of truth. It's experiential truth. That's what it means to be glad in God, to know your sin and weakness. But to know that whatever sin and weakness is in you, that it's, that, that it's no match for that work that I just described, which is he has accomplished on, our, on your behalf. Do you know that? Do you know that no matter what sin and brokenness you come up against in you or in others, it is no match for God's power and grace? Do you know that? Does that grip your heart? Do you live as if that, do you live from a place of that abundance? Or do you live from a place of scarcity? As if the, the real big thing is all that stuff that gets in the way, not his power and grace. But see, that's the truth these early Christians have been gripped by. That, that their brokenness and their sin was no match for his power and grace. And that kind of gladness leads to generosity. We've been talking about the fullness of the Spirit, you know, and this, a new friend of mine said that he grew up in a more of a, a Pentecostal charismatic background, and he said the way they understood the fullness of the Spirit is you were like a tire with a puncture hole in it. And every Sunday you came to church and you got filled up with the Spirit, and then you went away, and all week long you kind of deflated and deflated and inflated until finally you had to go back to church and, and fill it back up. I want to I su- suggest that we think of a different metaphor. Let's, let's think of the metaphor of a, of a cup. If you're, if you're in Christ... You're not, an empty cu- you're not an empty cup that needs to be filled. If you're in Christ, your being in Christ means that you have the Spirit, and if you have him, you have all of him. So if you're in Christ, you're not an empty cup, you're a full cup. Now answer this. Think, follow me here. If you take an empty cup and you fill it, what do you have? You have a full cup. If you take an empty cup and you fill it, what do you have? A full cup. If you take a full cup and you fill it, what do you have? You have an overflowing cup. And that's the image I want to come back to over and over again. John 7, Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. For whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow 
rivers of living water. And then John said this, he said about the Spirit whom those who believe were to receive. So if your faith is in Jesus Christ, you have the Spirit. And if you have him, you have all of him. When you become a Christian, you are filled with God's Spirit. You're not an empty cup that needs to run back to church to get filled back up. You're already full. But what if God were to come and to fill your already full cup? Then your gladness in God would be overflowing in worship, giving yourself away to him, in witness, in radical generosity to others. That's what we see here. How does this happen? What should we do? There's nothing we can do. This is the Spirit's work. And the Spirit blows where he wishes. St. Augustine knew that he needed joy in God to trump the other joys in his life that were keeping him in bondage, but he also knew it was what he called a sovereign joy. That is that God must give it. And here we see our dilemma. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you need, you need to be saved. You need salvation, but you can't do it. It's something God must do or it won't be done. If you're here and you're a Christian, you need power, you need revival, but you can't produce it. When you're, but when you're desperate for change, for strength, for wisdom, for salvation, and that's all you have is that desperation, that wanting, not a strategy, not a plan. The only thing you have, the only thing you have is your thirst, your plea, your prayer. That's the doorstep to revival. And that's exactly why we come to this table this morning. So let's pray as we get ready to come. Would you pray with me? So Father, we pray. And thank you for the gift of your Son. And then, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the sending of the Spirit into the world and into our hearts to fill us and to strengthen us and to give us all that we need, to bring us into the fellowship that you've enjoyed between the Father, Son, and Spirit from all eternity, that we might also experience that kind of love and joy and the overflowing of your, of your love and, and joy in one another, that we might, that we might partake of that. Oh, what, what blessed good news, Lord Jesus, that you have loved us to your own hurt, that you have given us a hope and a treasure that is beyond anything this world can take away from us, and that you have given us in the person of the Spirit all we need for life and godliness. You have richly furnished us with every good thing. And this table is a symbol of that as well. And so as we prepare to come and eat from it, would you strengthen us again? And would you use this this meal in these moments to nourish us and to feed us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Jesus' mission to rescue us from sin and death fuels our mission. His generosity towards us, despite our sin and brokenness, fuels and propels our generosity. His love and kindness for us overflows in love and kindness through us and out of us to others. That's the promise of this benediction. It's why we have these words here at the end. So as he sends us now, uh, this is the promise that you go and you live not from a place of scarcity, but from a place of abundance because of the work that Jesus has done on your behalf. Trust him. Believe. Believe in his love for you. It may make you bold and courageous, overflowing in love to him and others. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. Bye,